this week we are going to talk about very interesting topic what are angels mm -hmm. demons and who is satan mm -hmm. so let me pray so that we have clarity in this conversation heavenly father we thank you that you have given us your word to rely on to understand the spiritual realm may we not add to your word god and may we not ignore what is in your word help us to have wisdom in understanding how to engage with the spiritual realm, specifically the created beings of angels and demons. And so please guide this conversation and may this enlighten us to have a correct view because so often we could get enamored by the spiritual realm and too focused on it. And other times we wanna ignore it and pretend it's not there. So help us to have a right view of the spiritual realm and these beings and how they impact our lives. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so the first thing we want to realize when we're talking about this topic of spiritual beings is that God created everything in the physical and spiritual realm. So everything God created, right? So this would include angels, demons, and Satan himself. And when we talk about Satan, yes, we, we, we kind of separate him, but he also is an angel, all right? All angels and demons and Satan are angels, all right? So pretty much, we're really just talking about angels today. Just some are good and some are bad, and there's one lead bad guy, right? Satan. So God created angels, and then some became called demons when they walked away and disobeyed God, and the leader of that was Satan, who was also an angel. Does that make sense? We realize an angel and a demon are not different. They might not even look different though all culture and art has made them to look like they look different. They are all created beings. They will all be judged just like we will be judged. So they are held accountable for how they chose to follow God or not. Nehemiah 9.6 says this, God made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, and the hosts are the angels. So let's talk about first angels, meaning the good guys, the good angels, okay? They are a created spiritual being and they have moral judgment. They were created to know right from wrong and to make moral choices. They have high intelligence. They do not have a physical body. That is important to know. Angels do not have a physical body. We know that from Hebrews 1:14. Angels are spirits. Angels don't have halos or wings. They are not out to earn their wings. They do not have wings. It is not about them flying around because they are spirits. Now, all references to angels in the Bible do appear to have masculine qualities when they are personified and seen by people, by humans. They are always seen as masculine. Their names are masculine, but they are not men with wings. They are still spirits being personified in a masculine body. There has never been a personification of an angel in a feminine body, in the Bible at least. They have never been said to be made in the image of God. They are not made in the image of God. Only we are made in the image of God. Think about this. We are more like God than the angels are. We are more like God than the angels are. And as you will see, we are more favored 
by God than the angels are. And yet they are with him in heaven right now, worshiping him, serving him. And yet in our limited worship, in our limited service, we are still more favored than these angels because we are made in the image of God. What's amazing is God will one day give us authority over the angels and judge them. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 3. At the end times, we will be able to somehow understand the angels' journey and we will be able to judge them. They are also known as warriors to armies. These spirits, these angels, are called heavenly hosts, which means an army. So they are in battle. These angels are about fighting a spiritual battle. They can only be seen if God opens our eyes and allows them to be seen in some personified form. But if they are seen, they should never be worshipped. What happened in the Bible when people saw angels? The people that have seen personifications of angels have fear and at times might want to worship them. I wonder if it is because, one, they just came from the presence of God. They are, these are the angels that are pursuing holiness and worship and obedience to do what God is instructing them to do as messengers. But yet, we will one day have the ability to judge them. It is un, unfathomable to see how God honors us. Right now, even though we will get to judge them, it says in Hebrews 2.7 that humans are lower than the angels. So we're not as strong. We don't necessarily see what's happening in the spiritual realm. They are the ones fighting against the evil powers. We see that in Daniel 10.13, Revelation 12.7 and 8, and Revelation 21 through 3, that they fight against evil powers. But when the Lord returns, we will be raised, and that is when we will have a position higher than the angels. We will have our glorified bodies, we will be made perfect, and then we will get to judge them. Now, there are other names for angels in the Bible, and this is important, especially as you're studying the Old Testament, to know what some of these names are. Sometimes angels are called sons of God. You see this in Job 1.6 and Job 2.1. Angels could be called holy ones. That's Psalm 89, verses 5 and 7. They're known as spirits in Hebrews 1.14. They're called watchers in Daniel 4, verses 13, 17, and 23. Also, in Colossians 1.16, it talks about how there are thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. So angels, whether good angels or bad, meaning demons, can be seen as rulers or authorities. Part of their role for us, what, what is their engagement to us? Part of the role is to guard us. Psalms 91.11 confirms that angels are to guard us. I laughed when I was preparing this because immediately I wanted to sing Amy Grant's song, Angels Watching Over Me, every move I make, right? I don't know if you're that old school. Sometimes I sing it to my daughter before she goes to bed because she's afraid, you know. But angels watch over us to some degree. They worship God as we do. Hebrews 12, 22 and Revelation 5, 11 says they are constantly worshiping God. And they are a great model to us because they carry out God's plan by doing his word. They obey his word in Psalm 103, 20. 
They are ministering spirits sent out to serve. Ministering spirits. You see that with Elijah. When he was to the state of depression, he was underneath this tree and said that an angel came to physically feed him, to physically touch him, and to encourage him. Right? And so angels are there to do God's work uh, as a ministering spirit. Angels show God's great love for us. Remember, if we're made in the image of God, how are we different? This is what's amazing is that though many angels sinned and we call them demons, none of them are allowed to have salvation. Jesus did not die on the cross for all his created beings. He only died on the cross for human beings. We see this in Hebrews 2.16. This is what he says. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And so God did not choose to redeem any of them. They remind us that the unseen world is real. There really is something happening that we cannot see. They are examples to us because they do God's will immediately, joyfully, and without question. They are first-time obedience. That's what I teach my children. But angels show first-time obedience to God. Their delight is to be God's humble servants. And we should remember that they love to praise God continually, as we should. Angels actually watch our obedience and our disobedience. They see what is happening with us. So it should be sobering to think that maybe even hundreds of angels are witnessing our disobedience and they grieve. But on the other hand, when we think that no one sees us and we did that really great thing because we were obedient to God, perhaps hundreds of angels are witnessing it. We may bless an angel without knowing it, according to Hebrews 13, because they can be like a person, and we may not know that as we're caring for the needs of this person, we're actually ministering to an angel. So this should make us eager to minister to the needs of others that we don't know, because they just might be an angel. And they are to bring God's message to people. We see that very much in the New Testament, that angels were messengers of God. Now, they also carry out God's judgment. If you start reading Revelation, you start to see, and even in the Old Testament, that angels start to carry out God's judgment. When Christ returns, angels will come with him as a great army. And right now, they currently patrol the earth as God's representatives, and they carry out war against demonic forces. There's a war happening that we don't even know about before Revelation. And we see this in Zechariah 1, 10 through 11. This is one of my favorites, that an angel rejoices over one sinner that repents. This is in Luke 15, 10. There is a huge party in heaven when just one sinner repents. It means so much to them to see lives changed with the gospel. What's interesting is they're actually curious about salvation. It says in 1 Peter 1.12 that the angels long to look into the glories of the plan of salvation because they don't get it. They don't get to have the gospel. They don't get to be redeemed. And so they are always curious to see how the gospel works in our lives and individuals throughout to the day. Now, there are three other kinds of heavenly beings that are not angels per se. 
The first one is cherubim. They are given a specific task. Their first task was to guard the Garden of Eden. God said that he was to be enthroned on the cherubim or to travel with them in his chariot. We see that in Psalm 18.10 and Ezekiel 10, 1 through 22. So he talks about the cherubim helping him travel around, which I think is a little bit more of an allegory because God is everywhere, right? We learned that. He doesn't need a chariot or cherubim to take him anywhere. A cherubim were also over the Ark of the Covenant. Two gold figures of cherubim were over the Ark of Covenant. So they are very close to God the Father, to guarding things, to be right there with the Father. The second type of heavenly being is seraphim. Sometimes we just throw those together, cherubim and seraphim. We don't ever think about, is there a difference? What are these creatures, right? Seraphim are mentioned in Isaiah 6, 2 through 7. And their whole purpose is to continually worship God forever. They worship the Lord saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Their whole job, the seraphim, is to just have constant worship of God happening throughout all of eternity. The living creatures. The living creatures are mentioned in Ezekiel 1, 5 through 14 and Revelation 4, 6 through 8. The living creatures are personified as a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. And they represent various parts of God's creation. Here are the, the ways, a wild beast, domesticated animals, humans, and birds. And they too are worshiping God continually. So what you're seeing is these hosts that God's created, a lot of their purpose is to worship and focus on him and bring him glory and honor and praise. Now there is rank and order among angels. Michael is called the archangel in Jude 9 and he rules over the other angels. He is called one of the chief princes in Daniel 10:13, the chief prince, the main leader in the spiritual realm of the angels. He is the leader of the angelic army. It says that in Revelation 12, 7 through 8. And we know that an archangel's voice will announce Jesus' return in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, but it does not say if it is exactly Michael or not. But we do know that an archangel will announce Jesus' return. There are only two names of angels mentioned in Scripture. Do you know what the other one is besides Michael? Yes, right. Michael and Gabriel. Those are the only two names we know. Gabriel is mentioned in Daniel 8, 16 and 9, 21. And he came and spoke to Daniel. Gabriel also came to Zechariah and he came to Mary and Joseph in Luke 1, 19, 26 and 27. So we learn a little bit more about Gabriel because he's in our Christmas story and he becomes a little more familiar to us. Angels can only be in one place at one time, just like humans. But they do travel from place to place wherever God sends them. We know that from Luke 1, 26. We do not know the exact number of angels, but Deuteronomy 33, 2 says that there were tens of thousands of holy ones. Psalm 68, 17 says the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. I mean, who speaks like that anymore? I don't even know what number that is, right? But 10,000, thousands upon thousands. Hebrews 12, 22 says that when we come to worship, we are in the presence of innumerable angels. 
Revelation 5.11 says there are myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Pretty much it's saying it's an amazingly large number of angels that are worshiping God, the good angels. Curious question, and maybe especially if you grew up in maybe a different tradition, you might have heard of the idea of guardian angels. Where do we get that? Is that in the Bible or not? So we're going to talk about that. We know that God does send angels for our protection. That we see in Psalm 91, 11, and 12. It says this, For he will command his angels concerning you, angels, did you see that? Concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, that says multiple angels. doesn't say one, one specific special guardian angel. But the support, the one verse that people could maybe take to say that there is a guardian angel comes when Jesus is talking about little children in Matthew 18.10. It's the only verse. It says in heaven, when he's talking about little children, it says their angels. But again, it doesn't say one special guardian angel. It says their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. So again, it says, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Which is, again, showing the angels focusing on God and honoring God. That sentence does not even say, and so you have this personal angel that's going to guard and protect you. Right? But yet that's where this verse comes from. So it just might mean that angels are assigned to the task of protecting children. They just have ready access to God. That might be what that verse is really talking about. Like, Angels have ready access to God when it comes to children, but there's not really a clear convincing support that there are individual guardian angels in scripture. All right, we're gonna talk about the interesting term, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is different than an angel of the Lord. That's very important. These little tiny words can mean a lot, okay? So who is the angel of the Lord? Many passages in the Old Testament suggest that he is actually God himself taking on human form to appear briefly before people. So the angel of the Lord is spoken of the Lord himself. Genesis 16, 13 says this, Hagar was approached by what? The angel of the Lord. And this is what she called the angel of the Lord. She said, the God of seeing. So she called the angel of the Lord God. The God of seeing, because God saw her in her sadness. In Genesis 22, 12, it was the angel of the Lord that prevented Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac. It wasn't just an angel, it was the angel of the Lord. God said this, this is what he said with Abraham. Now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So the angel of the Lord that is talking is saying, you have not withheld your son from me, meaning God. He is God who is talking directly to Abraham. The angel of the Lord appeared to Jacob in a dream and said, I am the God of Bethel. But he appeared in the dream as an angel of the Lord, Genesis 31, 11. Also, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said, I am the God of your father. Again, claiming to be God, but was described as the angel of the Lord. If they say an angel of the Lord, it does not mean God. 
it means an actual angel. Okay, so when you look at that, that might be a fun thing to highlight when you're studying the Old Testament. Where are the thes? It is not clearly understood. Does that specifically mean Jesus or is it God the Father? We just know it is God. Okay, because that's all we can get from the Hebrew. So when were angels created? Well, we know it was before the seventh day of creation because Genesis 2.1 says, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. That's what Genesis 2.1 says. So we know that the heavens and earth were finished and all the hosts. So they were all created before the seventh day of creation. Exodus 20.11 also says that God made the heavens and earth and all that is in them, including heaven. So angels, we know, were created very closely to the same time as human beings, unless we believe in a long-term seven days <laughs> that we already talked about, right? Who knows? Another interesting thing, angels do not marry. They do not procreate. They do not have a love life. <laughs> and what's interesting is when we are resurrected and we will be given our glorified bodies, we will not marry as well. And we will not procreate in the new heaven, in the new earth, according to Matthew twenty-two thirty. So what's interesting is they do not have families like we do. God created us specifically to have families and fellowship, but angels do not have that opportunity. So one thing we want to be aware of is receiving false doctrine from angels. We'll call them angels here, but if it's false doctrine, they're demons, but they might appear like a beautiful ray of light. They might appear like it is right and true and good, but it could be false doctrine, okay? Galatians 1.8 says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This is important. The false doctrine here has to do with the gospel. That the danger is demons want to warp the gospel so that we will not be in heaven one day or others will not be in heaven one day. We have to remember that even Satan himself is disguising himself as an angel of light. He calls himself that in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. False doctrine or guidance can be conveyed by angels. We see this with Mormons. They believed in the angel Moroni who spoke to Joseph Smith to reveal to him the basis of the Mormon religion. Interesting, Moroni is not mentioned in the Bible. He's not one of God's archangels, right, that we know of. And yet here he has a name. He creates this relationship with Joseph Smith. It really was a real interaction because he was given all of this wisdom and knowledge very quickly. And yet it is in proper theology according to the gospel. That's what makes it so dangerous. Such revelation is contrary in points like the Trinity. The angels are not going to affirm the Trinity. They're not going to affirm the true understanding of the person of Christ. Justification by faith alone. We're saved by our faith alone, not by our works. So any claims to have received additional revelation of doctrine from angels should be rejected as false. Nowhere does God say, I'm going to send angels to give you doctrine. He never did that in the Bible. That was never something we saw. So angels come to help bring judgment, what God wants, or to give a warning or to protect, but they should not be coming to teach theology. 
They're not here to teach more things we should do or things we need to follow. That would be a false teaching, a, a, a demon in disguise. We should never worship or pray to them. We do not need to pray to angels. It needs to be said because if angels are there to guard and protect, it could be tempting to want to actually pray for an angel to guard and protect you, right? But nowhere does it say we should ever pray or need to communicate to an angel. There is no example in scripture of anyone praying to any specific angel or asking angels for help. You pray to God for help and God will send angels. Okay, we always communicate to God directly, not to any other spiritual being. Can angels appear today? Were they just in the New Testament or can we see angels today? There is no reason to believe angels don't appear today, they can. If God can send a human to warn us or encourage us, there seems to be no reason why he also can't send angels to encourage us or warn us. But we are to use extreme caution to receive any guidance from them because they could actually be demonic appearances. So encouragement, but not guidance. Just because you see an angel-like creature does not mean that this being speaks truthfully. What is our guide? Scripture, the word of God. If an angel says, oh no, but I have a revelation from God, I have a special message just for you. That is not of the Lord. Scripture is your foundation, not an angelic creature. And an angelic creature cannot give authoritative teaching that's contrary to Scripture. We see this in Galatians 1.8 that I read to you earlier. Let's talk about actual demons, an evil angel. Well, I was kind of intro to it, right? They're evil angels. A demon is one who, with their moral character, chose to sin against God and now continually works evil in the world. I mean, they are continually working evil for the past 2,000 plus years, right? 4,000, 8,000, who knows? God did not give angels a second chance, nor can they be a part of redemption of salvation. Second Peter 2.4 says this, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Now, they are still around. They are not somewhere in chains right now and cannot influence the earth. They are influencing the earth. But we know that Christ will come back and completely remove the influence of Satan and demons from the world. So there is hope they will be obliterated. The angelic world that God created did not have evil angels or demons in it at the time. When God created it, he did not create the demons, okay? Demons didn't start out evil, but they were good when God created them. They cho chose to rebel against God sometime between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1. That's where we know they rebelled. Somewhere within those two chapters of history is where they rebelled. The rebellion is mentioned in 2 Peter 2.4 as well as Jude 6. Their sin seemed to have been pride, a refusal to accept their assigned place right? God gave angels, they are supposed to be total servants, and they did not want to obey God with their assignment. It says in Jude 6, they did not stay within their own position of authority. They did not stay within their own position of authority. They wanted different authority, different roles, different responsibilities. It's also possible that there's a reference to the fall of Satan in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Interestingly, in seminary, 
Some people say, was that really Satan or not? I tend to think it was. This is what it says. How you are fallen from heaven. And it says in a few verses later, I will make myself like the most high. But you brought me down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So this strongly suggests a rebellion by an angelic creature. A lot of people would say it's actually Satan. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19 also alludes to Satan's fall, but I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. Genesis 6, 2 through 4 is unlikely to be related to fallen angels. If you know the story of Genesis 6, it says that there were these beings that came down and were intimate with the women. And so sometimes we'll say, was it angels having sex with humans? And they were called sons of God in this passage. And so we know that sometimes angels could be called sons of God. And so they wonder if this was angels marrying human women. But we know that angels cannot marry and they cannot procreate. So therefore, Genesis 6 is not angels. Another theory is that it was giants of the land or just something that seemed like a little bit of an anomaly of a, of a person. But they are also non-material beings, so they cannot have sex with people. Okay, and that's Matthew twenty-two thirty. All right, so how do demons work? Okay, one of my favorite reads, if you want to better understand how demons work in your life, is C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. I mean, it is a thin book. It is worth a read. Buy it. It's C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters. And it's literally these letters you're reading about how a demon is working and the hierarchy of demons to impact this Christian's life and negatively influence. Demons oppose and try to destroy every work of God. That is their determination. They want to destroy every work of God. How do they do that? They use lies, deception, and murder to try to turn people from God and destroy themselves, keeping them in bondage to things that hinder them from coming to God. That's in Galatians 4, 8. So they are the bondage makers. They are the ones that encourage suicide and murder. They are the ones that make you feel like you're crazy in your head with deception and lies. But this is interesting. Demons are limited by God's control and they do have limited power. As much as we think they are powerful and they do have a lot of knowledge, they are limited. They do not have the power they had when they were angels. God is limiting their power. So good angels are still more powerful and will always be more powerful than the evil angels. God is limiting their power. We see that in Revelation because we know who wins. And it's the angels that are the army. God's army is army of angels versus demons and Satan. Demons cannot know the future. They cannot read our minds or know our thoughts. But what does that say about fortune tellers or witch doctors or others under demonic influence who tell people, they tell them these accurate details that they think no one else knew in their life. How could this fortune teller tell me these things about my life that no one knew? Well, here's the thing. Demons can observe what goes on in the world and can probably draw some conclusions. I mean, if you have a demon watching you, he's going to learn what your insecurities are, what your tendencies. You can do a lot by just observing. Again, the Screwtape Letters book shows there's demons that could be watching an individual. So they're really studying that person to see what's going to make you fall. There have been differing stages of demonic activity in the history of redemption. This is why I would say demons will look different today than they did in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, false gods were actually demonic forces, mm -hmm. okay? Deuteronomy 32, 16, and 17 literally says, 
They stirred God to jealousy with strange gods, which, which abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. So here they think they're sacrificing to a god. God is saying it's a false god. God is saying, no, you're actually sacrificing to demons. Do you see that? So their false religion was demonic. Then in Psalm 106, 35, it says this, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. So worship offered to idols in all the nations surrounding Israel was really worshiping Satan and demons. Do you ever think of that? I mean, just think, oh, I think we have this trite view of, oh, they were worshiping these idols, this gold statue, right? This, this, this wooden statue. Oh no, they were worshiping demons. Okay, this is why God was so opposed to them. So pagan worship of demonic idols was characterized by destructive practices. What did we see? Sacrifice of children, inflicting bodily harm on themselves, and cult prostitution. I mean, that was in the temples. So when Jesus came to earth, we saw he commanded the unclean spirits and they all obeyed him, right? Jesus has power over unclean spirits. This is Mark 1, 27. Such power over demonic forces has never before been seen in the history of the world until Jesus came. No one was able to see power over demonic forces until Jesus. He said in Matthew 12, 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God, who? The Spirit of God, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It was the first time people were freed from satanic bondage and into the kingdom of God was when Jesus freed them by the Spirit of God. It was the Spirit of God that Jesus did this. The new power of the Holy Spirit working to triumph over demons was evidence in the ministry of Jesus. The kingdom of God has come upon you, he said. So during the new covenant age, which is our time after Jesus resurrected is the new covenant age, Jesus gave authority first to the 12 disciples to administer and be stronger than the demons. This was in Matthew 10, 8. Then after the 12, he gave this authority to the 72 disciples. And then in Acts 8, verse 7, he gave it to the church. The body of Christ now has authority to overcome demons, just like Jesus had in the New Testament. How we do this is ministry in Jesus' name in the New Covenant age, because we know we can triumph over the powers of Satan. This is in 1 John 3, 8. And I will share some examples as we move on. Now let's talk about Satan specifically. This is the personal name of the person that's the top head of all the demons. The Hebrew word for Satan means adversary. He is our adversary. That's what Satan means, our adversary. He is against us. Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So if Jesus says this in Luke, that's why people allude that that Old Testament verse is probably Satan and the angels falling from heaven because it, it coincides with what Jesus said in Luke 10. Satan falling like lightning from heaven means it was instant. He was powerfully thrown out. There had to be no, no fighting, no, no controversy, no war. He was just kicked out. So the most powerful demon overseeing all the demons has no power when it comes to Jesus, right? Because he was immediately kicked out of heaven. Just There is no equality. Oh, is God and, and Satan, who's going to win? They have equal power. Oh, no. Satan was immediately kicked out. Do you see that? The, the, there's a big disparity of power here. 
Here are some names of Satan in the Bible. He's called the devil, Matthew 4, 1. He's called the serpent. He was the serpent in Genesis 3, 1. So he personified as the serpent. Beelzebub in Matthew 10, 25. The ruler of this world, Ephesians 2, 2. The evil one, Matthew 13, 19. And the father of lies, John 8, 44. 1 John 3.8 says he has been sinning from the beginning. He is the originator of sin. Adam was not the originator of sin. It was actually Satan. He fell before he tempted Eve, but obviously after the sixth day of creation. Satan will try to blind people's understanding of the gospel. That's in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. That's his ultimate job, right? Is no more people into heaven. <laughs> How can I have them not understand the gospel, not care about the gospel, misunderstand it? He wants to hurt the Christian's witness and a light to the world. He wants us to look horrible, to be those born-again Christians, as Ellen said, that do not have a good, good witness. Both Satan and demons are limited in their power, and God is still in control of what they can do, even Satan. Now, here's something important. I think sometimes we give Satan too much credit when it comes to what is happening in the world. We need to emphasize to believers that sometimes it's our own sin and our own flesh, not just Satan. They are not solely responsible for the evil in the world, but people choose to sin in their flesh, which is James 1.4. And we need to remember that sin and rebellion persists in people's hearts due to our flesh. So we are just sinful and rebellious on our own <laughs> without demons, right? Yeah. We can't just blame Satan. But we do know that at the end, the end result for Satan is in the end of the millennium, Satan will be loosened out again after the millennium. The nations will be gathered for battle and he will be defeated and he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and tormented day and night forever. That's Revelation 20.10. I mean, I don't want to join him. Do you? No, we do not want to be in the lake of fire and sulfur, tormented day and night forever. And that is why we share the gospel with our family and friends. We need to emphasize to believers not to sin, but to live lives of righteousness. When the Apostle Paul saw dissensions in the church and fighting in the church, I need you to hear this. He didn't say, wow, there's a spirit of dissension. What he said was, agree to be united in the same mind in 1 Corinthians 1.10. He held people responsible to their sin. He didn't blame it on a spirit <laughs> causing division in the church. Okay, We should recognize that sinning, even by Christians, does not give a foothold for some kind of demonic influence in our lives. 1 John 3.8 says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Okay, if we keep practicing, if there is not repentance, if there is not any type of fruit in a person's life and they are not convicted by their sin, it doesn't matter if they prayed some kind of prayer or say they believe in Jesus. It says right here that if they practice sinning, it is of the devil. Now, we have habitual sin. We have sin we're trying to come over. If you feel convicted by that sin and, and, you, and you keep wanting to change, then you know, hey, even if it's a struggle in my life, I'm still a follower of Jesus. I'm just, I'm just still being sanctified in this area. That's the difference when it comes to this verse is do you have a repentant heart that wants to change or do you not even care? It goes on to say that by this, it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3.10. And then it goes on and says, See that the children of God 
are clearly not every human being, right? Some of you have heard me teach that before. We're all made in the image of God, but we're not all children of God. There are children of wrath and there are children of God. Revelation 12, 9 says, Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. He's called the ruler of the world, the God of this world, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So non-believers could have a spirit that is influencing them to continue to disobey. So I do want to be clear about this because you'll hear this in some maybe more charismatic movements, but nowhere in the New Testament does it say that there are territorial spirits when entering into an area to preach the gospel. People that have that theology of territorial spirits are taking it from Daniel or some Old Testament. But you think about, we're starting the church. We're in the book of Acts. Nowhere does it talk about, you need to go in and fight the territorial spirits before you start a church in this new place. You know, the, the disciples would have taught about that. They would have emphasized that if that was something we need to do before we go plant a church, plant a new ministry somewhere around the world. So we're not, we're not worried about a demon having control of a, over a place. This idea of demonic strongholds over a city that have to be broken specifically to get the gospel to go there, okay? It does not mean, obviously, Satan's at work in certain cities a little bit more than others, right? There's just certain cities where you see more death and destruction and, and things like that. And Paul did warn in the later days that some would depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So we have to be careful because there are people around us that might have been going to church, but because they don't have a foundation, are gonna start believing wrong teachings by deceitful spirits. Another thing, we need to persevere as Christians and still resist the devil, 1 Peter 5, 9, and give him no opportunity. So the devil still can influence our life as Christians. What might that look like? How do we resist the devil? We need to use the weapons of our warfare that God has given us to destroy strongholds. What are they? Prayer, fasting, and the word of truth. You can command evil spirits to leave in the name of Jesus. When I was at the University of Arizona, we were having a meeting and a student was speaking on stage. Every time he said Jesus, another girl in the audience started hissing and making noise. And we thought, oh, this is interesting. She was very distracting, obviously, anytime he said Jesus. So after the meeting, she started to go out the back door and I decided to go follow her. And I went to try to talk to her and it was as if there was a force field around her. I could not physically put my hand on her shoulder. I, it's like I couldn't get there. I couldn't get there. I was trying to talk to her and she goes, they're taking my child, they're taking my child, CPS is coming, they're taking my child. And it was all about a child. And I just started praying in the name of Jesus. And I had never done that before. I wasn't really raised understanding that. As I prayed, she just immediately went calm and she was crying, but it wasn't hysterical. It wasn't craziness. Because I saw, like, she's acting out when she hears the name of Jesus. So what's going to have more power? The name of Jesus to get this demon away from her. So that was my first time ever experiencing a true, like, demonic encounter. And we see that the name of Jesus works and is powerful. And we don't need to fear them. 1 John 4, 4 says this, He who is in you, the Holy Spirit, right, is greater than he who is in the world, which is Satan and his army. Instead of giving into fear, we have to fight fear with scripture, right? 2 Timothy 1, 7, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but what? Of power and love and self-control. This is how we fight the spiritual realm. We don't need to be afraid of it, but he has given us the power to overcome it. He gave us a shield of faith to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Ephesians 6 says that. 
So here's a question. Do we speak directly to demons or not when we encounter one? Or do we just pray and ask God to drive them away? Now, I, I told you earlier, we don't need to pray for angels to come and rescue us. We pray directly to God. So would this be different? God has given us an active role in carrying out his plans, even in the spiritual realm, and especially to advance his kingdom. So that's how you have to think at first. My role is to advance his kingdom, and he's given me these spiritual weapons of prayer and the word of God. How am I to use that in the spiritual realm? So our direct involvement and activity are important in the spiritual realm. So God actually encourages us to enter directly into conflict with demonic forces in the name of Jesus. So when I saw that girl, I said, in the name of Jesus, you be gone. I didn't say, God, if she has an evil spirit in her, would you please take it away? I said, in the name of Jesus, you be gone. Because Jesus modeled in the New Testament that you can directly remove evil spirits. The 12 disciples directly removed evil spirits and the 72. So with evil spirits, we are allowed to say, in the name of Jesus, you have no right to be here. You be gone. You're not asking for God to just remove it because we have Jesus's power to do that. And we see that the power comes from the Holy Spirit that's in us. Matthew 12, 28 and Luke eleven twenty. Okay, so our last discussion is, can a Christian be demon-possessed? The term demon-possessed is an unfortunate term that has found its way into English translations of the Bible, but is not really reflected in the Greek. So this is where we have to go back to the original language of the text. The Greek New Testament can speak of people who have a demon, or it can speak of people who are suffering from demonic influence. But it never uses language that suggests a demon actually possesses someone. It doesn't actually say that in the Bible. The problem with the term demonized or demon possession is that they give the nuance such strong demonic influence that they seem to imply the person who is under demonic attack has no choice but to succumb to it. They have no choice. If what they mean by possessed is a person's will is completely dominated by a demon, so the person has no power left to choose to do right and obey God, then the answer is no. For scripture guarantees that sin shall have no dominion over us since we have been raised with Christ. Now, I am talking about Christians here. I'm not talking about non-Christians that we see going and shooting up schools and literally writing, a voice told me to. I felt like I had to, okay? That is demon possession. We're talking about Christians. That we cannot be so overwhelmed with a demon and be so possessed that we have no control over being when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. It just would be contrary. So last, just demonic influence can be recognized by bizarre and violent actions especially in opposition to preaching the gospel. Satanic or demonic activity always tends toward the ultimate destruction of parts of God's creation, especially humans. So just to realize there is power when we go and we pray in people's homes, when we pray on a campus, when we, when we pray in a neighborhood, go walk your neighborhood and start praying by each house in the name of Jesus, I pray for this house, and, and just see the power of what God can do, because I definitely saw that at Berkeley. In conclusion, even though we can't see them, whether it's angels or demons or Satan, they are real. We need to keep acknowledging that because the rest of society does not want to acknowledge that. They'll, they'll be willing to acknowledge aliens, but not angels and demons, you know? We want to be prepared and be ready, but not be afraid or timid. 
not to over spiritualize, but also not to under spiritualize. And so it's Jesus, give me wisdom. Holy Spirit that's in me, show me when I'm supposed to use in the name of Jesus and show me how to continue to walk with you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have created these angelic beings to worship you forever and ever, that you've given us angels to protect us, to encourage us. God, and even though there are fallen angels that come to steal, kill, and destroy, that we know that in you we are protected. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the name of Jesus. We have prayer and fasting and your word. And so we know that we can be more than conquerors because he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. So may we leave here with confidence, knowing that you will guide and protect us. In your name we pray. Amen.